Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 464, recorded on Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week's topic is the anthracite coal strike of 1887 to 1888 in eastern Pennsylvania. In episode 452 on the Burlington Railroad Engineers and Firemen Strike of 1888, we mentioned that there was another overlapping strike, which was said at the time to be a potential source of surplus labor to break the Burlington strike. This other earlier strike in Pennsylvania's anthracite coal regions, a multifaceted action against various mining and railroad companies, some of which were the same due to vertical integration, was unusual because it was initially supported by the middle class and local press. They did so out of resistance to the power of minor local coal barons in that part of eastern Pennsylvania. The middle classes were very resentful of independent petty bourgeoisie coal operators who wielded tremendous socioeconomic control locally. They were rather less offended by the major corporations who had been asserting near-monopoly dominance in much of the area since the early 1870s. The local and socially influential smaller capitalists struggled to compete with or bargain against the market power of big rail and coal corporations like the Reading Railroad, but they were still rich and powerful in their own fiefdoms, and they definitely treated these communities and their inhabitants like fiefdoms. The middle-class residents, unaffiliated merchants, and newspapermen spent years actively trying to foment labor insurrections to curb the power of the local barons. They did not object nearly as much to the major capitalists who were based outside of the region and disconnected from the local community. In no great surprise, however, after they had eventually successfully triggered a large strike by the working classes of the region, the merchant classes and the local press turned on the strikers anyway, especially as the major corporations got pulled in after the smaller operators. Ethnic conflict and immigration were also major themes of this particular strike, It is not as well known as some other Pennsylvania labor strikes of the post-Civil War 19th century, but we felt it deserved an episode from us because of how well it illustrates some of the contradictions and periodically conflicting interests within capitalism. For this episode, our major source is a journal article titled The Anthracite Strike of 1887-1888 by Harold W. Orand in Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, Volume 35, Number 2, from April 1968. So let's set the scene. These were the conditions for local mine workers when the strike arrived. Um, Quoting from the article, it was difficult to see the advantages of working in knee-deep water, breathing powder fumes, and having coal dust settle on faces and bodies drenched by seepage. But being uncomfortable was only a minor irritation when compared with the terrors of working underground. Despite mine safety laws, the anthracite mines claimed 2,703 lives in the decade of 1876 to 1887. 
Miners' asthma awaited many who escaped the mines unscathed, end quote. Um, another factor is mine workers had to pay for their own equipment, including even the blasting powder. This seems relatively odd to us today, but is consistent with an older model of capitalism and industrialization where workers were almost like independent contractors or tenant farmers working a plot of land, in this case one underground, or in other cases a factory building. The article's author found a similar comparison from the time period itself, quoting a local news article from January 1888 referring to mine owners as quote-unquote lords of the domain of the surface lands above and around the mines, where they exercised nearly total economic and social control. The so-called independent mine owners were like local feudal lords, and even if they were much smaller than the huge corporations from outside the region, they were still extremely important and powerful in the areas where they own land and other businesses. Beyond the usual company stores and company housing, doctors or even clergy were provided by the independent mine owners, but all charged back to the workers. Mine worker wages in the region were pegged to a base value and would rise or fall above or below that peg as the price of coal rose or fell. This meant that wages could fall extremely low as coal production rose and drove down market prices. It was often possible for all the obligations to the mine company to exceed the payout, thus putting the worker into debt. Uh, coal prices experienced variability in part due to wild fluctuations in production levels and demand levels over the course of a year. Anthracite was a heating coal, among other uses, which meant that there was a lot more demand in the winter. Independent operators would often shut down a mine for months at a time until a more profitable season, rather than consistently mining year-round and stockpiling the resulting coal. Workers generally only had work for 8 out of 12 months of the year, and in those eight months, they were frequently given only half or three-quarter shifts rather than full employment. This made it difficult to earn a consistent year-round survival wage to support the miner and any family members he might have. In the 1870s and 1880s, workers in the independent mines would sporadically stage small strikes over these problems with very little success. It was easy for mine owners to promise minor concessions, usually with a delayed implementation based on future market conditions, which would never actually be implemented, but would defuse the strike anyway. So let's talk about the run-up to the big strike in 1887. So back in 1884, the Miners and Laborers Amalgamated Association was formed, drawing mostly from English, Welsh, and German immigrant miners. The pre-existing Knights of Labor, reaching its zenith at the same time, tended to attract the Irish immigrant miners. The two organizations managed to put together a joint committee in 1885 to coordinate action between them and reduce turf wars. By the summer of 1887, the Knights of Labor, however, was already beginning its rapid national decline, as we have covered in other episodes, but it was still a major force in Pennsylvania coal country. The joint committee of the two unions authorized a strike to begin September 10, 1887, at any anthracite coal mine whose operator did not either concede to a 15% increase in the wage base peg or open negotiations on the matter. Some areas were much better organized than others, and the unorganized areas tended to have low participation in this labor action. In places where the Philadelphia and Reading Company, one of the largest corporations in the world at the time, held nearly monopoly control of the anthracite coal mining sector, a miners' strike was forestalled by negotiations, leading to a temporary settlement of an 8% increase. That agreement would run until January 1st of 1888, and the idea was to secure a general agreement with all operators in the meantime. But the smaller independent mine owners flatly refused to negotiate with the unions, rejecting them as an outside force disconnected from the business realities of running a coal mine. 
At this point, 20,000 mine workers walked off the job. The independent operators attempted unsuccessfully to lure other immigrant populations to take the vacant jobs, but apparently Italian and various Slavic worker communities were more inclined towards solidarity with the strikers. Workers who did show up interested in mine work did not actually have mining experience, which was a dicey proposition for the owners. Rumors then began spreading that the owners were bringing over Belgian workers to break the strike. Belgium had been in a recurring state of severe worker unrest verging on revolution since March 1886, which was well known to American workers in newspapers at the time. We've seen it mentioned in contemporary news stories about other U.S. strikes we've covered in the same years. This possibility, denounced in the local papers, provoked such fury that populist and labor-friendly Greenbacker Republican Congressman Charles N. Brumman appealed successfully to Democratic President Grover Cleveland to order the Treasury Department's customs agents to crack down on any Belgian immigration in major U.S. Atlantic Coast seaports. Apparently, 12 Belgian miners were detained in Philadelphia, but that's not exactly a deluge. The independent mine owners, used to shutting down production completely for much of the year anyway, although usually not in the fall and winter, decided to shut production when smaller, insulting braise offers were rejected. They attempted to follow the usual playbook of evicting the workers from company housing, but surprisingly this was denied by a court injunction. They did, however, take full advantage of their iron-fisted control over the rest of the local economy to prevent workers from buying groceries and other necessities on credit from the company's stores. Some of the local coal barons said they would starve out the workers for 20 years, and the workers responded with a defiant anthem pledging to stay on strike for 35 years, even if their children had to take over the strike. Nevertheless, many striking workers did actually opt to relocate, rather than starve, often quickly finding work for the giant rail coal corporations who had reached that earlier interim agreement with the unions to keep their minds going. Other strikers simply switched industries, seeking work in Pennsylvania's major cities, or traveled west. Still others even went home to Europe to wait out the strike, since it was still relatively common for immigrant workers in the U.S. to cycle back home periodically. For those who did remain on strike in coal country, union relief committees raised money from sympathizers or members elsewhere. Railroad workers at the Reading donated too. The most interesting source of striker support and donations, however, was the local business community unaffiliated to either the independent or corporate mine owners. Rather than the usual hostility toward any labor action, they began the strike period in mid-September 1887 in a favorable mood. One editorial stated, quote, For years have the intelligent people of this region been looking upon this picture of despair, but they, like the toilers, have been dem deaf, dumb, and blind until now. The time has come, however, when silence ceases to be a virtue, and we believe that if the strikers will stand united, they may be successful, end quote. Another editorial in a different paper in October 1887 illuminated the animosity between the locals generally and the domineering local coal barons, stating, quote, The tactics of the petty nabobs of Lehigh are more than the like the antics of the old-time Russian despots in dealing with their serfs than the conduct of American employers toward Ameri American workingmen, end quote. Yet another paper in December 1887 added that the strike, quote, points out very clearly that public opinion is molded in favor of the miners in their struggle of might against right. The defiant stand taken by the operators against what is only fair and just has awakened the American people to the fact that a few millionaires have combined together to defeat the mining class of people in their endeavors to get a fair compensation for a fair day's labor, end quote. No wonder then that a congressman felt more than comfortable taking action against these ostensibly powerful interests. 
The newspapers also argued, further clearing up any mystery as to why the middle, local middle classes resented the coal barons, that these mine owners were making their money in the region but spending it elsewhere, including on philanthropic interests, and that their company stores and debt peonage crowded out any opportunities for local shopkeepers, described as quote-unquote legitimate business houses to succeed in commerce. Protestant pastors delivered pro-strike lectures and raised money for worker relief, while Catholic priests also refused to condemn the strikes. After the first few months of strike action against the independent operators, backed by the local middle classes, the mood began to turn against the bigger corporate operators. These rail coal companies based outside the region, like the Reading or Lehigh Valley Railroads, had bought themselves some goodwill by quickly negotiating a temporary agreement and even offering excursion service to a benefit concert by the Philadelphia Academy of Music. But the clock was ticking down toward the January 1st expiration of the temporary agreement when they might decide to join forces with the shuttered independent operators. And the big corporations were ramping up coal production levels in their mines to unprecedented volumes. It began to slowly dawn on the strikers and their supporters that not only did high production levels drive down the price of coal and thus wages floating against the base peg, but also it might even be the case that these operating mines were secretly fulfilling the contracts of the closed mines to strengthen the overall position of the owners in the region if they did end up joining forces against the workers in early 1888. Suddenly, the labor-friendly mask dropped at the Philadelphia and Reading Company, when the railroad division suddenly fired and blacklisted every Knights of Labor member on the railroad after some of them refused to deliver a carload of flour because of a labor action at the Philadelphia Grain Elevator Company. In this move, railroad management was gleefully supported by the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. Management also issued a provocative statement that, quote, the company will hereafter operate its own road if it takes a regiment of military at every point, end quote which vividly called to mind the Reading's brutal suppression of workers during the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, just a decade earlier. It was now difficult to imagine that the Reading, also the largest coal mine owner in Pennsylvania's anthracite region, was actually going to continue working in good faith with the striking mine workers when 1888 arrived. The unions quickly moved to request an extension of the temporary agreement before the January 1st expiration, and this time the corporation refused any negotiation, citing the price of coal which they had been driving down for months through overproduction. The company also was simultaneously set to come out of receivership after a prior bankruptcy, which meant they did not feel as much pressure as they had in September to accept or extend a temporary agreement. Independent operators in the Reading-dominated areas, who had accepted the temporary agreement unlike some of their nearby peers, had been open to con continuing the temporary agreement, but they were essentially at the mercy of whatever Reading decided to do, since workers would respond accordingly toward all the operators. On January 3rd, Reading Company miners finally walked out too, joining their comrades who had been striking at independent mines elsewhere since September. Moreover, there was now a major strike among Knights of Labor rail workers on the Reading Railroad itself, which could affect coal shipping in the region. At the few remaining operational independent mines, workers halted their mining because they refused to supply coal that would be carried on strikebreaker Reading Railroad trains. At this point, with the entry of a giant corporate monopoly into the conflict, the labor unions pivoted their strategy and began a legal and public relations campaign to seek the breakup of the Philadelphia and Reading Company. They wanted to force the railroad to divest its coal operations. This was not a question of federal antitrust law, which was still two years away. 
The Pennsylvania State Constitution of 1874 explicitly prohibited railroads from owning mines, but the Reading had acquired these mines beginning in 1871 and was thus apparently protected from being broken up by the state. Members of Congress did, however, begin a round of investigations and inquiries into the situation in Pennsylvania's anthracite coal country, mostly because they had various political conflicts or rivalries with some of the different power players involved, and this did eventually lead to proposals of federal legislation forcing the deintegration of the rail and coal industries. They also found evidence of collusion and cartel activity among coal operators in the region to control production levels, prices, and labor activity. However, nothing came of these findings, and no divestment legislation was passed. The Redding Company was vastly more powerful and deep-pocketed than the independent coal barons had been. They weren't going to fiddle around with bringing in a dozen Belgian strikebreakers or starving out workers slowly. They simply kicked strikers off their property, brought in hundreds of Italian strikebreakers, and refused to sell any heating coal in the region at all, so long as the strike continued. They also significantly increased their already sizable permanent private security force. In the regions where the Reading was not a big player, independent operators had long since alienated the local middle classes and their newspapers, but in the Reading zones of near-monopoly control, the local economy was dependent upon but not owned by the Reading, and they were not only unwilling to back the strikers but actively endorsed the position of management. Newspapers were now firing back anti-strike editorials and denunciations of congressmen, insisting that cartel coordination of production levels to stabilize prices and prevent overproduction was economically legitimate and not speculative profiteering. Whereas coal baron company stores had squeezed out rival economic activity, in places where Reading mines prevailed, many shopkeepers and other small merchants had been doing a vibrant business for years by selling to mine workers. With these workers now out on strike, these shops were teetering on the brink financially. Even if they sometimes sympathized with the plight of the workers, they were desperate for the strike to end and blamed the workers, not the inflexible Reading Company. Soon, they too were denying credit to striking workers, perhaps not even in a coordinated way, but simply because they were not a good credit risk anymore. In these areas, Protestant and Catholic clergy did not endorse the strikes and often spoke against them. Even the newspapers that had encouraged the strike early on began to suggest that the middle-class business community's objectives of breaking the power of the local coal barons and allowing free commerce outside their grasp was probably also achievable by simply attracting other heavy industry to the region and reducing the significance of coal. Worker unrest and frustration grew as the mine managers at the end of January began announcing with more confidence that they would be reopening in February despite the strike. Morale and resolve collapsed. The Knights of Labor called off the strike on February 17th, and their miners went back to work. The Amalgamated Association held out several days longer and obtained a minor concession on the cost of mining supplies that workers had to provide themselves in order to work in the mines. Reading Company President Austin Corbin made a charitable donation of $20,000 to worker relief as a gesture to the defeated strikers after they agreed to return to work. The more vindictive coal barons did not follow his lead. Their workers returned over the next few weeks, and the strike was officially over across the region at both corporate and independent mines by March 12, 1888. They had neither obtained a rise in the base pay rate peg, nor won recognition of their unions for bargaining purposes. The sympathy strikes in support of the striking Reading Railroad workers also did not achieve anything notable, and the rail strike failed too, as we discussed in our Burlington episode on the strike on that railroad, that began in February 1888. 
The journal article author observes that organized labor was falsely encouraged by early support in some areas from some members of the local middle classes. This support was contingent upon self-interest and a shared conflict with the independent local coal barons. As the strike widened to include the powerful but external monopoly corporation of the Reading, strikers found they could not count on an escalation or expansion of support from the middle classes, who had a very different relationship toward this new second industrial revolution model corporate conglomerate than they did toward obnoxious nearby pseudo-feudal industrial barons of the earlier industrial model. Labor viewed its conflict within a region-wide or even state-level lens, whereas the middle classes of this area were much more geographically focused in a quite parochial way. They didn't like being bossed around by or commercially squeezed out by independent mine owners. That was the big presence near them. But if they lived and worked near the faceless corporation based outside their communities, they were dependent upon it but not controlled by it, and they were not personally antagonized by it. The Redding and the other corporate rail coal companies did not operate com company stores or company housing, nor did they cons constantly put their workers into debt by nickel and diming them on everything. Their presence created a great opportunity to do business by selling and renting goods and services to workers, unlike the independent smaller operators whose presence discouraged or even precluded commerce. The author of the 1968 article cites a different author, Robert O. Schultz, from an article for American Sociological Review in 1958 on the social order of the anthracite region, with the observation that the corporate executives also did not live in, work in, or generally even visit any of these mining communities where the companies own mines, and they didn't really care who was influential or held elected office or received clerical posts, etc. The local coal barons, on the other hand, wanted to control every little detail and make everyone defer to them. If they had gone under, their mines would simply have been acquired by an outside corporation, and there was no risk that jobs would have been permanently lost. In 1889, in a review of the industry titled Coal and the Coal Mines, Homer Green wrote the following summary of the general perspective many people in the region held at that time. Quote, in general, it may be said that the control of the anthracite coal business by the great corporations, rather than by individual operators, is an undoubted benefit not only to all the parties in direct interest, but to commerce and society as a whole. The only danger to be feared is from an abuse of the great powers to which these companies have attained, a danger which thus far has not seriously menaced the community, end quote. So that's the end of the narrative on the anthracite strikes in Pennsylvania from the end of 1887 to the beginning of 1888. Uh, but there were a few things thematically that we wanted to talk about, uh, in relation to this strike that obviously jumped to mind based on the narrative that you've just heard. So the first point is to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of industrial feudalism of what is essentially the local gentry. So traditionally, uh, the gentry, uh, looking at the English model, uh, these would be people that are uh, non-aristocrats, uh, usually make their money from some sort of mercantile activities, and then become uh, gentlemen farmers, right? And they own property, and they collect uh, rents from uh, tenants and so forth. And as we've uh, explored, there is uh, some amount of similarity here. One uh, article that we've probably referenced before on the show, uh, but is always good to refer back to, uh, is Patrick Wyman's September 2020 article, American Gentry, Local Power and the Social Order. Uh, that was about the modern counterparts, contrasting them to absentee major capitalism. Uh, but there was a transitional uh, phase 
uh, in the development of American capitalism and American industrialization. Uh, and I'm not sure yet if we're going to be doing an episode on the book titled Rockdale, uh, which I referenced on our Boston Associates episode, uh, but this will come up again. In our early 2023 series on the Boston Associates, we looked at the earlier non-corporate model of industrialization, which was not the model used by the Boston Associates, uh, but which became the prevalent system in the uh, 1870s, uh, because the Boston Associates uh, incorporation model and shareholder model uh, was much uh, better suited to large-scale consolidated uh, heavy industry. Um, but again, that was not the traditional model for much of the uh, early Industrial Revolution period. And what we're seeing here in this strike is a tension uh, between these two. Uh, we also talked about this as well on our 2020 series on the rise of Standard Oil, one of the early uh, major monopoly corporations and, and interstate corporations. Uh, and you can see that transition happening. So uh, this as we've just talked about, was a situation where you had uh, a couple major outside corporations, uh, the Reading and also Lehigh Valley uh, Railroad. These were uh, railroad companies that had also gotten into the business of coal and uh, coal mining. Um, but they're not the only players, uh, although they're significant and huge uh, faceless forces in this region. They're not the only uh, players uh, because we still have these independent operators. And again, these guys, although they are technically industrialists, operate much more in that um, pseudo feudal role or that uh, landed gentry type role. Uh, and you can see that from even just the way that they uh, treat the workers, um, you know, controlling every aspect of their lives, making them dependent on them and so forth, but also just simply, uh, you know, making them uh, pay for their own supplies and equipment to go down and, and mine uh, coal. Uh, we also see in other industries uh, that this had been a common uh, practice, which we talked about on our episode about the um, uh, the strike among uh, Massachusetts uh, bootmakers uh, in uh, several decades earlier. This is a pre-Civil War strike. The, the transitional uh, period in early industrialization and early American capitalism, where you go from everything being oriented around piecework to eventually things being oriented around hourly uh, wage labor. And this is not something that happens overnight. So this strike in the late 1880s, uh, although that is uh, quite a ways into the second industrial revolution, shows you that in many ways, this was still an ongoing transitional process in this period. And the reason that I bring up the Patrick Wyman article, and this is what I want to talk to Rachel about uh, as one of the two uh, themes to uh, pull out of this narrative on this part one particular strike, is that the uh, what, what Wyman terms the American gentry is this very specific sort of subclass of American capitalists who are not the major shareholder, uh, they, they don't own a major corporation. They're not on the board of directors of a major corporation. Uh, they're not, you know, getting involved in what becomes Fortune 500 stuff that's traded on Wall Street, right? That's not their their business. These are not the, the Boston Associates types. We are talking about these much more localized guys who within their sphere are very rich and very powerful and very influential, but they're not like major national players. They're not engaged in multinational uh, corporate activities uh, that not only span state borders, but also outside of the U.S., right? These guys are very uh, 
wealthy and influential within a very geographically constrained and narrow sphere. And this gives them a political and social role that is completely distinct from the uh, the big capitalists, uh, the, as, as uh, epitomized here by the Reading Railroad. And this creates a different social relationship with, say, ordinary uh, middle class residents, uh, little shopkeepers, clergy, things like that, uh, as well as the workers. Uh, it creates a very different relationship uh, than their relationship toward one of these major corporations. Uh, and now Wyman talks about a lot of these guys as being um, very geographically tied in their business, especially if they are literally gentry in the sense that they own uh, big agribusinesses, not like the gigantic agribusiness corporations that are, you know, globe bestriding colossuses, but these ones that are pretty significant major farms in a particular region, and they're obviously not going anywhere because their business is tied to that. And similarly, what we see in this example here from the 1880s in Pennsylvania are these independent operators who are on the way out, but still very much a force there. And they own the mines they're tied to that physical area. They're starting to dabble outside with their philanthropy activities in places like Philadelphia or whatever, right? And they'd always had that kind of relationship to uh, Philadelphia and some of the other major cities. That's something that also comes up in the Rockdale book, which is about a different uh, period and, and area of uh, eastern Pennsylvania and early industrialists. Uh, but these guys are all real small-time industrialists. They're definitely rich and powerful, as I said, within their sphere, but they're not on that same level as these major second industrial revolution corporations that are starting to emerge. And their relationship is that they own the only source of work in their area, usually, or the only major source of work. They're capricious in many cases toward the workers. Uh, and they uh, own the company stores, the company housing. We talked about you know, how they had control over uh, even the clergy and the doctors and so forth. And everyone is completely dependent on them and if they were and 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 basically has to kowtow to them. And this is uh, not going over very well as we saw uh, with these sort of middle class residents. So Rachel, I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on this because I thought that this strike, although again, not necessarily hugely significant or well known, is illustrative of a transition that's occurring and a very specific, uh, contradiction within capitalism that is worth noting and understanding. Yeah, one thing that really jumped out to me was that kind of local middle class support and newspaper support for the strikers because they were going up against these independent coal barons that were so powerful in their communities. And I thought that was like really interesting compared to like most of the strikes we look at are against these like giant corporations and so the middle class and um and the newspapers are often aligned with them because their aims are the same and they're not in direct competition with each other in the, in a way the more independent coal barons are in direct competition with those like middle class uh like shopkeepers or or i guess i, I the newspaper owners um so it's, it's very interesting to see during that transition phase, the way the the middle class chose to align themselves versus like all the the typical strike actions we see, where often they're they're aligned with the corporations. And interestingly, again, they 
they see the corporation as their lifeline out of this situation that they're unhappy with. Previously, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have had that option. Now you have these major corporations. And think about it from a practical standpoint, right? When we're talking about these coal barons, that would be the equivalent of like, this guy is the biggest deal in like one town, mm-hmm. not even probably the county, right? He he completely controls everything in one particular town, and he's the biggest deal in that one town. But his influence and his power and his wealth are really pretty limited to that one town, maybe, maybe a couple towns if it's a larger guy. The Reading Railroad is operating on a completely different scale. Again, this is at the time one of the largest corporations in the world, and they are operating at the level of being the largest coal owner in Pennsylvania. So they don't really care. I mean, obviously, they want politicians and people like that who are friendly to their interests. But, like, they're not going to care at the level of, like, who's on the town council or who the mayor is in your town, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas everything becomes totally deferential to these coal barons in the places where they are the big deal. Right. And I think we're kind of like making a, 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 a parallel to today, like a, the guy who owns a car dealership and he like owns maybe a few car dealerships in like a county level or a city level. And he can have that really great influence within that county, but you don't really know who he is outside of that. So yeah, he owns his own little fiefdom in a, at the county level and has a lot of power there. And, uh, but not necessarily, he can't make it bigger. He can't expand on that by an order of magnitude. He, he's just very tied to that location. Yeah, the uh, example that was often given when Patrick Wyman was making the rounds on various podcasts and so forth, talking about the September 2020 article on American Gentry was like uh, Buddy Garrity from Friday Night Lights, right? He's a mm. huge deal in that particular town. The you know He's the head of the booster club for the high school football team in that town in Texas. And he's hugely socially influential and everything. Uh, Another example that comes to mind for me that people would probably be a little less familiar with is there's a similar type of guy in the uh, book and TV show Dare Me, which is about a cheerleading team in a uh, Rust Belt community. And basically all of the jobs are gone at that point, except that he's this like real estate and construction guy Mm -hmm. uh, in in, 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 in he's, he's... And he serves a similar function to Buddy Garrity, which is that, again, he's the head of the boosters for this cheer squad. He's going to try to build them a big stadium, uh, you know, because the high school doesn't have a good stadium and you got to have a good stadium. Everything is economically dependent on this one guy because all of the other economic opportunities either never existed or in this case have uh, disappeared, right? That is a specific class of guy. And that still does exist in the United States today. They tend not to be... Uh, these industrialists anymore because most stuff uh, in heavy industry, uh, setting aside the agricultural stuff, did end up going toward the model of the major corporate entities, right? But that is a a type of guy that has existed and been very influential within American society and American politics over the centuries. Uh, And so that is, I think, worth understanding and thinking about because, again, they're all capitalists, but there are different varieties of capitalists. And as I think this particular strike makes very clear, that is also not to suggest that somehow some of the capitalists are better than the others, because in the end, they were all willing to come together and break the strike. 
But there was that period where you could see that there were some differences and that there were inherent tensions and contradictions within people's relationship locally to these particular capitalists. And they were looking for, uh, if they weren't the workers, right, and they were just sympathizers and, and trying to encourage the end of this regime of these local barons, they were open to the idea of having these major corporations come in and buy up everything because that was going to make their particular life experience better, not for the workers in the mines necessarily. Uh, although, again, maybe it was slightly better. We saw that a bunch of these workers went over to work for the major corporations while they had the temporary agreement in place, and they probably discovered uh, for that short period that they weren't getting paid in company store script. They were getting paid in actual money that could go get spent in an actual store. Um, but I think it's interesting to zoom in on this as a case study in the different types of capitalists that there are and what their sort of role in the hierarchy is. Now, Patrick Wyman's argument from the modern standpoint is that those guys are the the base of political reaction in the United States. Uh, they're the, the base for uh, Trump, for example, not some sort of mythical white working class in middle America. It's those guys that own the car dealerships or own all the farms or in this historic example uh, would have owned these independent coal mines. And that these guys are this deep, deep reservoir of American political reaction. They wield a lot of influence and control over large areas, can probably, I mean, this was in the English model to go back to the uh, gentry stuff. Those gentry guys, right, used to buy parliamentary elections in rotten boroughs, either for themselves or people that were going to do what they wanted. They would force their uh, eligible voters in their district to do what they wanted, or they would bribe them to do what they wanted. And you can imagine that there was a similar thing going on as well, because this is shortly before the era of the uh, folks like um, Bonaparte in Maryland that we did an episode on trying to do cleaner elections in places like Maryland and Baltimore, uh, where there was less, you know, open bribery and ballot box stuffing uh, and and things like that. This is this is this this reservoir of American political reaction in the United States that's that's pretty well funded, right? Because again, these guys are rich enough to throw their weight around in the areas that they control and dominate, even if they're not playing on the same level as a publicly traded major firm that's based in New York City or Philadelphia or something like that. But these guys are uh, a serious business in their own particular spheres, and that forms a very reactionary uh, political base in the United States that is worth understanding uh, because, again, as capitalists, they have a different set of interests than some of the other capitalists, right? The multinational corporate uh, interests are different from those guys because they exist in a different space. And yes, they're all interested in making money, but they have these other divergent sets of interests as well. The second theme that we want to talk about uh, again, looking at the specific sort of type of industrial activity that's happening here, uh, and, and particularly these independent uh, mines, we talked about how they were open for eight months out of the year, even when there wasn't a strike happening. We talked about how uh, the production levels were wildly inconsistent. People wouldn't get normal uh, working hours. And I think you can see where we're going with that in terms of modern parallels. Uh, so this is expanding on a point that we started raising in our series on containerization, uh, as well as third industrial revolution episodes. 
Um, to what extent do we see current trends in capitalism reverting back to earlier modes of capitalism, like those seen in smaller independent operators in Pennsylvania coal country? Um, something we talked about with the rise of containerization was the wild swings in boutique production levels instead of consistent year-round smoothing of production. One of the big sort of achievements, quote-unquote, of the second industrial revolution and particularly the uh, post-Fordist era uh, or, or the 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 Fordist and beyond era is the idea of you should be trying to set annual targets, have consistent year round production, have everything functioning uh, smoothly at a regular pace all year round. Uh, and now with the rise of containerization and things like that, we have situations where factories uh, will start spinning up production uh, briefly, do a limited run of something and then halt production permanently on that thing, or maybe for several months to see if there's more demand. Uh, and they, those workers are much more contingent. They don't have a reliable job all year round, uh, and it's totally dependent on what the market conditions dictate because the transport costs and things like that are now so low that you don't have, and you don't have as much warehousing because of just-in-time uh, supply chain models, uh, which we've now seen the vulnerabilities of that um, during the pandemic. You, the these companies feel much more comfortable with having pretty erratic swings in production rather than having it be smooth all year long. Um, similarly, I think you can see some parallels to the gig worker relationship to operator companies, whether you're talking about Uber or any number of other companies, right? The idea of like, you got to provide your own equipment, whether it's a car or a pickaxe or even uh, powder for blasting, right? You, uh, you, you have a very tenuous relationship, even though you're expected to show up for work uh, all the time and you don't get paid enough to actually survive and you sometimes end out more in debt, right? Because your car broke down or your uh, pick broke. Uh, that kind of thing we see happening again as well. And so I, I think this is interesting to contemplate again because it's it's almost like some of this capitalism industrial model is going back full circle. Now that there's been enough changes where they can do enough stuff uh, electronically, make instantaneous decisions, have less warehousing, uh, and most importantly, perhaps, have surveillance technology that can monitor the workers when they're in the field acting quasi-independently or autonomously, uh, is a very different situation than the earlier push to not only standardize production lines inside factories, but also just literally bring people all into a facility and have them work as employees for a corporation for a protracted period of time where you can monitor them, keep an eye on them, build relationships, etc. That was not the model that was used in the first industrial revolution and uh, with these independent guys that were sort of holdovers from that period. And I think that's interesting to see some of these trends uh, almost turn the clock back to an earlier model of, of uh, production modes and services uh, in some cases, because they now have the technological abilities and, and cost effectiveness abilities to be able to do that in a way that they didn't. Uh, and it was and it wasn't efficient to do it that way uh, in the 19th century. Yeah. And I think it's moved into kind of like the the emails jobs as well. I think there's you've I don't know if you've read the horror stories of like people who are expected to like provide their own device, provide their own phone line, provide their own Internet connection or rent those out from the company. And then they're getting paid a very, very small wage based on the number of call volume they bring in, 
but they're unable to bring in that call volume. So then they end up owing the company money instead of actually making a wage. So that it seems like the, the miners that are losing money on, on blasting powder and pickaxes, it's, it's come around to that again, just in like higher tech, uh, less tangible uh, sort of uh, as mode of production. And the whole model of, uh, you know, things like the Amazon Mechanical Turk and stuff like that, where you have developing nations workers doing digital piecework, uh, you know, checking off all the boxes that have traffic lights in them or whatever to help train the computer on how to do that image recognition, things like that. And they get paid not by the hour, uh, but by how many of these they complete. And it's a very, very uh, low amount of money. Uh, that it's not really a, a meaningful wage in any sense. That is also something that, you know, used to be much more common at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. It's just interesting and unsettling and disturbing to me to see some of these trends come back around as they now, these companies now figure out a way to do that uh, cost effectively and efficiently, which was the only reason why they stopped doing it that way in the first place. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, any other closing thoughts on the uh, anthracite strike uh, in Pennsylvania in 1887-1888? I just wanted to point again to how kind of how much of an anomaly it was and because it was in that kind of transit transitory period um, between the conglomeratization of of the coal mine owners. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating case study, even if it was a completely unsuccessful strike that was otherwise not that notable. Right. All right. Well, Rachel, thanks for being on the show this week. Always glad to be here.